Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, part one of a series of podcasts by Dr. Ariel Glynn of Leiden University and Doyle Fallon of University College Dublin. The series, Hidden Dublin, From the Monto to Little Jerusalem, is based on a UCD adult education lifelong learning course of the same name, which Donal and Ariel created. The course is open to all members of the public. Its next run begins on the 23rd of February 2016. For more details, including information on how to enrol, go to ucd.ie forward slash adult ed. This episode looks at the rise and demise of Dublin. Well, we're sitting out in Trinity College, Dublin, of course the oldest college, not only in Dublin but in the island of Ireland, open for business since the 1590s. Uh, and it's kind of a fitting place to be because we're, we're starting with the, the rise and demise of Dublin. You know, our course is primarily set in the 19th century and into the early 20th century. Uh, and really we're looking at, at, at really the decline of Dublin, you could say. You know, a city that suffered from a lack of industrialisation, uh, a city where, you know, tenement, tenement slums and squalor was rife, a city of kind of low employment and massive underemployment. Uh, but before we get into all of that in the first week of the course, we tend to look at the, at the, the rise of Dublin and, and how Dublin became a great city before it fell. Uh, primarily that's the story of the 18th century city. At Trinity College today, you know, that the colleges from the 50s and 90s, as you walk around the campus today, what you see really is the 18th century development. You know, it's an 18th century uh, campus, and it's the product really of what was considered to be, at that point in time, the second city of the British Empire. Uh, I think it's quite funny now we're moving towards the St. Henry of the 1916 Rising. And when you read books about the Easter Rising, they talk about how there are bullets flying on the streets of the second city of the British Empire. But Dublin wasn't the second city of the British Empire by 1916. Mm-hmm. You know, it had long lost that status. It was a city that was, you know, after coming through more than a century of decline by that point. So we, we begin with the 18th century when that was a fair title to, to describe Dublin. Uh, I think when you're talking about the 18th century city, uh, why not take O'Connell Street, a street we all know very well, uh, why not start with that as an example of what was happening in Dublin at the time? Uh, and like so much of the, of the Dublin of the 18th century, that really is the story of the banker and developer Luke Gardner, who played a, a very key role in developing that street. Now, the story of 18th century Dublin is the story of Luke Gardner, and the story of Luke Gardner is the story of 18th century Dublin. Uh, he laid out Henrietta Street in the 1720s, and that kind of rapidly became one of the most fashionable and in-demand uh, and exclusive streets in Dublin. And funnily enough, it over time would come to embody not only the rise of Dublin, but also its decline. He lays out Henrietta Street in the 1720s, and then in the 1740s he begins work on what is now, of course, O'Connell Street. They knew it as Sackville Street. Uh, And Frank Hopkins, the great historian of Dublin, he's written about how he did this and how rapidly it happened. He said that Gardner demolished all the original buildings on the street and replaced them with imposing townhouses. He doubled the width of the street to 150 feet and erected a tree-lined mall in the centre. You know, this was one of the widest streets in Europe uh, in its day. And it was ambitious, but if it was ambitious, it was in keeping with the spirit of the city at that time. Now, what was so important about Dublin in the 18th century, people often ask. Siobhan Kilfeather has written the great cultural history of Dublin. She, say, she says that you know, Dublin was the financial centre of the island. It had a monopoly of professional services, higher education, like Trinity College, and the higher courts of law. And it was a city where political power, though it was very limited, uh, was centred. So it was a city where the landed classes built houses. It was the city where the rich lived. And you know, Gardner's project really ties in with what's happening broadly, broadly speaking. Walk around Dublin today and you see 
you know, the Parliament on College Green, the Royal Exchange, or City Hall as we call it, the Four Courts, the magnificent Custom House. You know, these are all monuments still standing to this golden age, this period, where you have not only massive architectural projects, but streetscaping, the Wide mm. Streets Commission. They're so important in the story of Dublin. They transform the city. They take it really from, you know, they take it as Andrew Kinkada said, they had this comprehensive vision of the city. They imagined urban space as a planned and controllable unit. And they take Dublin from being something like Edinburgh, back streets and alleys and narrow little byways, and transforming it into a grand city. Yeah. And just, I suppose, to underline how much Dublin was expanding at the time, um, you know, David Dixon, in his recent book, um, that we very much recommend, Dublin, the making of a capital city, talks about how in between... 1700 and 1750 the size of the population doubled so that it became it was around 125,000 by mid 18th century and, and it was within the, the top 10 uh, most populous cities in Europe at the time in the top 5 north of the Alps so he talks about it being more populous than Madrid um, or Berlin you know, which is incredible to think. And, and it was also out of those top 10 most populous cities it was the only one that was in the capital of a sovereign state, so yeah. it's it, you know that I suppose that brings up this notion of the second capital, you know, um, and and the parliament, as you mentioned, really was something that was key to this. That there was a big fuss when the viceroy came in every two years. You know, there's a big parade with cavalcades, and um, you know, and and that would have brought a lot of business to the city, and you would have had a lot of professionals involved. Yeah, it's it's a much derided parliament. <laughs> for much of the 18th century it has very little power you know, yeah. London can veto decisions so though, though it doesn't London can veto decisions that are made there and the joke at the time is it's half a stone's throw from the college and half a world from any knowledge but while it may not have much political power until the days of Henry Grattan uh, it still gives the city this you know for the wealthy of the city it's this important focal point and you look at places like Henrietta Street where many parliamentarians live, industries like sedan chair making are thriving in Dublin yeah. because of the presence of this wealthy elite in the city. Other industries in Dublin at the time, people might be surprised to hear, like for example brewing, you know at the height of it there's 55 breweries functioning in 18th century Dublin. And what, so what would they have been brewing? Well, they joked at the time that you know, the water was so undrinkable that people, even children, turned to booze instead, turned to beer instead. We don't know the names of many of these breweries today. They've fallen through the cracks of history, but they were massive, massive companies, like Sweetman's, for example, you know, a family who were deeply involved in the United Irish movement uh, in the 1790s. Of course, there was Arthur Guinness and Sons, uh, established in 1759. But the Liberties, of course, was the, was the epicentre of that industry. It was right along the river. You had the river Poddle to draw from as well. Uh, and to think of 55 breweries in a city is just astonishing, coupled with a huge distilling industry as well. Yeah. That has survived in certain ways, but obviously it's more, much more condensed. Although you could say today with the renewal of the craft, you know, craft beers, that there are you know, these, these little microbreweries popping up, which and is perhaps a bit more in keeping with the, the 18th century. The joke was that the beer is ranked tin, musty and stale and worse than anything except the ale. You know, it, was, it was joked that it was almost undrinkable. But that was another effect of having this political epicentre uh, was that you know you had clubs, pubs like the, the likes of the Globe, uh, which was popular with politicians. Uh, you had the Eagle Tavern in Temple Bar, which was a centre of politics. You know all these other things derived from the fact Parliament was here. It created a, even a even a, 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 a social scene in Dublin, yeah. which was very very important. And, and there's more going on. You know, obviously there there are huge developments afoot, 
in that the, the press is starting to expand. The Freeman's Journal is yeah. founded in the 1760s, and you have, you know, the, um, there's also a rise of politics that yeah. people are challenging the corporation, which is yeah. being ruled by these merchant kind of bankers, uh, these, these great merchant families, these Anglican kind of families, and they're, they're being challenged a bit. You know, you have these figures coming up, um, and it's you have Charles Lucas challenging this, you have David Diggs Latouche, and they're kind of more from the artisan kind of class, and they want their say in matters. Yeah, I think like Napper Tanti, uh, you know, who's a very, very important United Irishman who kind of commands the attention of, of kind of unskilled workers in the city. So yeah, because of the, 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 the availability of the printing press for the first time, you're seeing a new kind of discourse in the city. That's definitely noticeable. Uh, one thing, though, that's also noticeable is the incredible disparity between the wealth in the city and the incredible poverty. Which is going to be kind of a feature, which is a feature of our course, or which was, and, and is a feature of these podcasts, you know, that, that this continues throughout. But it's, it's already very apparent it's in very the 18th visible. century. It's very visible. I mean, there's this belief that with the Act of Union, the lights go out, you know, and things fall into this sudden sense of poverty. There are very poor people, even in the height of it all in the 18th century. Benjamin Franklin comes to Dublin in 1771, uh, and Franklin, he, he writes about this, you know, this, this contrast. He, he writes about how, he says, Ireland itself is a poor country, but Dublin a magnificent city. But the appearance of general extreme poverty among the lower people there are amazing. They live in wretched hovels of mud and straw. They're clothed, clothed in rags, and they subsist chiefly on potatoes. Our New England farmers of the poorest sort, in regard to the enjoyment and all the comforts of life, are princes were compared to them. So there is poverty. Uh, the best proof of that is, is really Whitelaw's survey. Uh, people today are obsessed with the 1901 census, the 1911 census, finding out where granny or great-granny lived. But we have a census from 1798, uh, which was, of course, undertaken by a Protestant reverend, James Whitelaw. And what he found is quite incredible. This is before the Act of Union. And he finds, he says that, I've frequently surprised 10 to 16 people of all ages and sexes in a room not 15 feet square. And he discovered that, you know, the, the, in, in some parts of the city, you know, he had a claustrophobic 440 people per acre living in St. Michael's, which is around Christ Church, and a more comfortable 87 people per acre in St. Thomas's, which is the Sackville Street, O'Connell Street area, by way of comparison, the population density of Dublin in the early 1980s was only 20 people per acre. So people were, were crammed into the city, even in the 1790s. And even in, in more affluent areas of the city, the population density is still huge. Mm. So like, what are we talking about when we think of Dublin back in the late 18th century? You know, Because a lot of people obviously today live out in suburbs that you know, was complete countryside until sometimes 20th century. So it's is it very much confined to the two canals between the two canals? It is like the suburbanisation, which we talk about in, in our class, is is a kind of late that you really see that process beginning uh, in the second half of the nineteenth century. You know the likes of rat mines. Uh, at this point in time, the city is the city is growing in the eighteenth century. It's moving towards the east. You know, with the White Streets Commission in, in particular, uh, you see you see Dublin expanding towards the east, and that's reflected, for example, in the. Uh, in Gandon's Custom House, yeah. you know, and in, in, in Sackville Street, Dublin is moving away from its kind of old medieval core, which it shakes off very, very slowly over a long period of time. Uh, what's noticeable, though, I think, we think of Dublin today, we think of class division in Dublin today as being north and south of the Liffey. Uh, what you find in the 18th century is that the working class and people that are the underemployed class, the wish they were working class, the very poor people, are living in the West. You know, the, the, the real economic... Uh, 
poverty is found in the west of the city, in the kind of in the Liberties area. Mm. So that's where you have kind of unskilled workers in abundance yeah. at that time. Well, you could even say probably today this north-south divide is is an unreal one. That it, often it's the east and west. Indeed, still. yeah. No, that's I think that's still the case. I think that's still the case, and it's often overlooked. But what what they consider the city is a very small is a very small uh, chunk of what we now regard as the centre of Dublin. Mm. You know, the places like um, you know places just beyond the canal that we now consider part and parcel of Dublin at this point are, are essentially rural farmland. People have country homes in what become the suburbs in the 19th century. Yeah. And you talked about uh, visitors coming to Dublin, like Jackson, coming in the late 18th century. And, you know, I suppose we have to highlight what was going on around Europe, uh, in, in North America in the late 18th century, and the effect it was having on Dublin. So you had the, the war between Britain and the, the kind of independence movement in the United States, or what became the United States. You had the French Revolution... And all these things are happening at a time of, of, of incredible change. So it, it kind of conflates. And you, you have, as you, you've mentioned a few times, the United Irishmen. But it, it probably starts with these secret societies. Yeah, there's a culture of that in the city, definitely. But Dublin is unusual in a couple of ways. And one way it's unusual is it's, it's a Protestant city on a Catholic island. You know, and that affects everything in the city, really. Uh, you know, Dublin in, in the 1660s was estimated to have a Protestant majority of over 70%. And by about 1800, the, population, the Protestant population has, has shrunk to about a third of the city. Uh, or sorry, has shrunk to about a third of what it was. But Protestants represented a majority in the early 1700s. And they were still about 40% of the city by the 1760s. So the fact Dublin has this sizable Protestant population throughout the 18th century, that's something that affects politics in the city. Uh, and the United Irish movement that emerges in the 1790s, I mean, at its, at its initial core, that is a Protestant movement. You know, its, its backbone is drawn from liberal Protestants in the city. So that, that's an interesting thing, too. Uh, the United Irishmen are, are, are quite interesting in that they're, they're meeting in places we, know, we, we still have in Dublin today, uh, like, like Taylor's Hall, for example, which becomes known as the Back Lane Parliament. Uh, and one Trinity College student stumbles on a meeting there. Uh, and he, he, he writes about Taylor's Hall. He says, The very aspect of the place seemed to render it adapted for cherishing a conspiracy. It was in the locality where the tailors, skinners and couriers held their guilds and was the region of the operative democracy. He talked about how he saw a man there, a slight, effeminate-looking man with a hatchet face, a long nose, rather handsome and genteel-looking. And that was, of course, Theobald Wolf Tone. So you have these kind of secret societies, these outbound societies in the city that are drawn both from kind of Protestant tinkers that are well-educated, uh, people like Wolf Tone, graduates of Trinity College, and from the kind of the, the working classes of the liberties. Mm. And I suppose Wolf Tone himself uh, yeah, is emblematic of this new challenge that these merchant bankers are facing. And, you know, it's, he has a Catholic mother, he's involved in the Catholic committee, as mm. you said, uh, but he, he is Protestant, but he's, he's you know, that, that the influences of what's happening in America, what's happening in France, is you know that these more republican yeah. values and and these are being challenged these are challenging the status quo but not perhaps in the way we might think of today but they're definitely challenged for for change yeah. and 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 it sees huge challenges to the city's administration to to the crown if yeah. if you think and this eventually leads to the Act of Union yeah. that we've well, mentioned. But while people like Tone and people like Napper Tandy and others are politicising kind of some sections of working class people in Dublin, 
uh, like it's important to say there's still a very loyal element in the city too like when when news reaches Dublin in, in, in that year of rebellion in October 1798 the Battle of the Nile and when news reaches Dublin that like Admiral Horatio Nelson has been victorious at the Battle of the Nile Thomas Packenham has written about how you know there was this kind of massive sense of celebration in the city he says that they crammed more candles into their windows. People used potatoes as candlesticks. The streets were crowded. Groups were singing God Save the King and Rule Britannia. Various devices were erected on prominent buildings. An illuminated transparency of George III in the Mansion House and one in the post office of the brave Admiral Nelson, defending with a sword the harp and the crown. It was months since the people of Dublin had felt such a glow of British patriotism. So even though there is this kind of, there's this Republican movement in the underground, there's still a sense of Dublin is still identifying as a British city in many ways, even in 1798. So this divided sense of loyalty in the city is, is interesting. And I suppose when the Act of Union did come into place, there was a divided response in, from around the country, as in, I think David Dixon talks again about how Cork and Belfast are kind of, they're saying, well, maybe this is a good thing, this will take Dublin mm. off its perch. Um, uh, the people within the city themselves they, they see it as a disaster you know in terms of business in terms of what's going to happen in the city um, and, but the, there's a kind of it, this decline is, is quite slow there's not an immediate decline if you look at what was going on on the ground in terms of economics and business that you don't see uh, devastation but you do see this gradual Dublin yeah. coming down from its grandeur. Yeah, the grass doesn't start growing on the streets kind of immediately. But, you know, the Act of Union is a, is a really defining moment uh, in Irish and British history. And Orby MacDowell, he's right, he says, you know, it was the threat of invasion and rebellion that kind of convinces Pitt, the Prime Minister, that this is, this is necessary. Uh, he sees it kind of as a, a strategic necessity and a security precaution. But the perception, you know, that this unpopular piece of legislation was only passed thanks to corruption still kind of remains popular in Dublin today. And, and the rhyme at the time was, how did they pass the union by perjury and fraud, by slaves who sold their land for gold as Judas sold as God? Uh, Jonah Barrington, who was one member of Parliament who was there at the time, he opposes the Act of Union, and he later calls it a disastrous measure called a legislative union that extinguished in one blow the pride, the prosperity and the independence of the Irish nation in Dublin. So I suppose the popular narrative is that the imposition of direct rule begins this process of rapid decline, but it happens much slower. You know, it happens over time. But certainly it does have an economic effect, because it's not only parliamentarians that leave with the abolition of the Irish Parliament, there's an economy constructed around those people uh, that collapses too. So it, it has far-reaching consequences. And later, of course, it has consequences during the famine of the 1840s. You know, Ireland is disconnected from Britain by a sea. You know, Daniel O'Connell and other Irish MPs, they try and appeal to Westminster about the state of the crisis in Ireland in the 1840s but there's a disconnect there, there's a, literally there's a geographic disconnect and it becomes apparent in the following decades that it's near impossible to rule an island from another so it has very 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 far reaching consequences uh, and what's so interesting about 19th century Dublin what follows the Act of Union I agree totally with Joseph O'Brien, he says that you know, Dublin is a total oddity and it's a rarity because this was a time when cities underwent rapid transformation under the urbanising pressures of industrialism, whereas Dublin is a capital city in decline. And really that's what we look at in our course. And I suppose coming in on, on what you were mentioning about the famine, Dublin has you know, a strange experience with the famine. It's not like Roscommon or the West Coast or you know, some of these midland counties where it, you know, the population was 
struck so heavily in, in that Dublin pe- people in Dublin have a different diet to those in the countryside they, they're not as reliant on potato as they are elsewhere and, and for that reason they're not as healthy before mm-hmm. the famine you know the people outside the city probably would have been taller would have been healthier because their diet of potatoes and milk uh, but in Dublin what happens is that you have a flood of people into the city so you have visitors coming to Dublin and not noticing the family well uh, Victoria herself coming um, in 1847 and talking about the splendour of Dublin but then if you look further a bit like you were talking about how divided Dublin is you know if you go to certain areas especially near the workhouses then you really see Dublin and if you go to the port because a lot of people were coming to Dublin not to stay there but yeah. to go to Liverpool and you had these you know I, I suppose it's it's demonstrated today on the quays near the customs house where the statue is of these people uh, the famine memorial and they were going to usually towards Liverpool so you, you see yeah. the, the population in, you know, around the country is declining rapidly because of the famine well at least in the western seaboards and some of the counties I mentioned but in Dublin it's rising because people are yeah. coming into the city. And not only is it rising the demographics are changing the people that are coming into Dublin are largely of a Catholic peasantry. They're shifting the demographics in the city. They're also largely Irish speakers. You know, Dublin was a city, even in the 18th and late 17th century, where English was the dominant language. Even at times it was still being spoken, and predominantly in rural Ireland, Dublin was always an English-speaking city. So the demographics are definitely altering as mo- economic migrants, essentially, are flooding into the city. And that's, that's even before the famine. You know, people are coming from the west into Dublin. Uh, but certainly it, it's a noticeable thing in the 1840s that the demographics of Dublin are shifting as these kind of economic refugees, if you will, are flooding in. Mm. And, you know, what happens is a lot of them try to go to Liverpool and some are actually sent back because they're seen as diseased, they're seen as destitute, you know, because... because a bit like we see in Britain and other places around Europe today, there's this sense of anti-immigration uh, party. You know, who are these people coming in, begging on our streets, destitute, taking our jobs? It, and so there's this backlash. So uh, there's actually quite a lot of people sent back to Dublin. Yeah, it's, particularly, it's particularly vivid in Punch, uh, the cartoon magazine, and in the Times newspaper, which really rallies against these people being taken into Britain. And yet, yeah, in many cases, they do return to Dublin, of course. So it's there a noticeable presence on the streets of Dublin in the 1840s, and they—I they, mean, obviously the city is already, but is already bursting at the seams. So this influx of, of starving migrants uh, from from the rural countryside—it obviously has an impact on housing and health in the city too. Mm. But I suppose that's a subject for an, another podcast. Yeah, we're, we're going to do one about housing, uh, but I suppose just touching on on, on what was going on, uh, how visible it was in the city, because the famine is such a fundamental event to Irish history and Dublin history you know it's important to point out how again how the the experience of the famine was different uh, all around the country and and we we hear about people being basically when they enter the workhouses around the country that, that, that it often meant death but this wasn't actually the case in Dublin that they were actually some some very um, some some you know Cormac O'Grada who's probably the world's most renowned expert on famine, you know, he talks about how the North Dublin Union was actually, you know, compared to, to rates around the country, quite quite healthy. You know, that people are they're looking after uh, their poor better here than they are in elsewhere around the around the country. And it, you also have some 
well, some kind of famous legends that have that have come up, you know, as a result of the famine. So you had this this famous, I suppose you could call him celebrity chef ahead of his time, Alexis Serre, who comes into the the city and you know tries to put in place these soup kitchens, mm. and you know, he, so he he was quite an interesting character in himself that he, he developed many kind of many inventions. So to feed soldiers in war on the battlefront and he also you know introduced this notion of the soup kitchen but mm. there's also a legend of him getting chased around the city because of the, the lack of meat in his soup so y- y- you had this yeah, he's important you know because charity is important that's a, that's a part of the story of the decline of Dublin mm-hmm. uh, in the early 19th century and throughout it is the emergence of charities and you have the sick and indigent room keepers for example they're established in the late 18th century uh, but there's more and more charities emerging in the 19th century and, and, and uh, the, the celebrity chef whose recipes are printed in, in the Times newspaper ironically a paper that had nothing good to say about the Irish during the famine he's an interesting example of charity and philanthropy uh, people are often amazed we, we, we talk about this you take Guinness for example during the famine famously the, the family donates £60 pounds, uh, and then they donate an extra £100 pounds, largely because they're guilted into doing it so there's a perception in some sections of society in the 19th century, uh, a religious devotion to free market economics uh, and an unwillingness to engage in charity, uh, and you know, seeing it as some kind of divine will if people find themselves living in incredible poverty. Uh, but the, charity in Dublin is something we look at in the course. It's it's, it's hugely important. In, in famine relief, it comes from the most unusual of places. And you take, for example, you take Quakers in England who have no historical connections to Ireland whatsoever. I mean, they raise almost forty thousand pounds in the early stages of the famine. Uh, in famine relief, the, the Society of Friends are hugely important. You take uh, the Choctaw Nation, Native American people. Uh, you take the French, Irish Americans. Uh, I've always loved the urban myth in Dublin that Queen Victoria gave two pounds to famine relief. That's <laughs> not quite true. It was two thousand pounds, uh, but a, a, a fairly pale sum by comparison to what some charities had managed to raise. So we look at the emergence of places like the sick and indigent room keepers, uh, places like the Mendicity Institution. Uh, they're an important part of the story of Dublin as well. And I suppose, coming in, you know, when you're talking about charity, you, you also see the rise of the Catholic Church a bit more, that they're becoming more prominent in these kind of organisation of relief. Whereas before, you know, the Catholic Church, un, until this, the late 18th century that we had been just talking about, you know, was a, was a bit player. Um, but, but just towards the end of that century, they're starting to feature more yeah. prominently. As... You know the penal laws are drawn back to a certain extent. So it, I suppose for people not overly familiar with Dublin and Irish history, you know it's important to point out that Catholics were very much second class. Oh, yes, I mean think about the, the churches of Dublin. You know that, that laneway beside Grafton Street. Uh, you walk through it and, and between it and Paris Court Townhouse, and there's a Catholic church hiding there. You know what's a Catholic church doing hiding in a laneway? There's a reason they're there, and not in more prominent places. Uh, of course, the two great cathedrals of Dublin are, are, are about Anglican. So the Catholic Church is really, uh, it's in the shadows in the 18th century. It's down the back alleys, down the back streets. And it, it emerges in the 19th century as, as a powerhouse in many, many ways. Now, of course, Daniel O'Connell is in one way is important for doing that. He provides the Catholic Church with a political platform uh, and a sense of political power. But they become providers in a very real way in the 19th century for very poor people. Uh, they become, they become a, a, an authority in their lives. Uh, and that's something we examine too. Mm. And educators. Educators, crucially. So crucially. just, you know, we will talk about health and housing, um, uh, but it's also t- important to point out about education, what was going on, that, that 
this kind of rising Catholic middle class, more educated, more aware of their rights, is coming to, um, you know, at the same time as the mostly Catholic population is being decimated by the famine, there's actually an emerging class that is very um, certain in its views, that are uh, very forthright in its views that this cannot happen again, the famine cannot happen again, that we have to take our rights. So this, I, I suppose, keys us up to to some later discussions we'll have about, we'll be talking about different type of nationalism from the 1798 um, kind of more secular re- republicanism that it becomes a bit, a bit more uh, sectarian, if you will. Predominantly what we're talking about today, I suppose, was the rise and the rise of the city, started with the 18th century, what many people consider to be the golden age of Dublin, but trying to show that things were more complex than that, looking at poverty in that period. I suppose we've ended up touching on a lot of other things uh, that we'll hopefully explore over the next few podcasts, uh, in particular things like health and housing, uh, identity, religious identity, political identity, and the kind of changing demographics uh, of the city into the 19th and early 20th century.